I'm going to invite you to join me for prayer as we begin this morning. Father, we thank you for time. We thank you for time in your word. And Father, our desire is to learn of you. And along the way, Father, I ask that you'd grant us understanding and knowledge. But most of all, Father, that we might see and know who you are and be encouraged to trust you as you lead us. And so, Father, I ask that your hand would be on this hour, that my lips would be careful to speak only that which you have given to me. And I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. I had a pretty fancy PowerPoint, but you're going to get the low-tech version today. No PowerPoint, so it's on the board. Three verses I want to start with this morning. This is not where I really want to draw a lot of points on, but three things I need to be reminded of. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, very familiar passage. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, equipped for every good work. The key thing I want us to recognize here was this all Scripture. What Scripture were they talking about when Paul wrote this? Only the Old Testament. There wasn't any other Testament. It is the Old Testament. So understand Paul and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is saying that Old Testament has got a lot of great stuff in it. I want you also, if you have a moment, to turn over to Romans 15.4. And again, a, a verse that I use a lot and you've heard before. It says, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And again, the writer of Romans is saying that all of that stuff in the Old Testament that we be tempted to dismiss or run by is written there to encourage us. And then the one that I use the most is 1 Corinthians 10, 11. It says, Paul's writing, he says, now these things, and he's been talking about everything that happened in Israel and the nation of Israel and the Old Testament. These things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so here's the deal. I want us to understand as we go into the Old Testament and as we look through the book of Joshua, that we understand that these things were recorded and written for our instruction so that we could be encouraged and gain hope and be instructed in the way that we should live. So I don't apologize for going to the Old Testament. It happens to be where I just enjoy teaching from, and I enjoy teaching from that which is known as narrative or just a story. I like a story. So we're going to look through the book of Joshua today. And that incredibly complicated outline I left you just says chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 through 12, and 13 through 22. And so that's what we'll do. And we're not going to read all of it, of course, because we couldn't do that. We'd love to do that. But we're going to catch the story of Joshua and pull out some principles for faithful, fruitful living that comes from that. Now, let me give you just a tiny bit of background to Joshua. And I'm sure that most of you know this. As I look around the room, uh, I see Bible scholars abounding. And uh, many of you know this better than I do. But Joshua is a record of God keeping the promises that he has made. After Adam sinned and the whole thing fell apart, and Brother Joe talked about that we were made in God's image and we were put in a perfect place with no problems and given the privilege of working and developing, after all of that fell apart, things got very bad, so bad that God sent a flood and he saved only one family, Noah, out of that and basically restarted. But after Noah, all things went bad again. And even though there were some who were a remnant and some who were faithful, 
most of the world turned away from the Lord. And so it went very badly. And so we come to Genesis chapter 12 where God chooses a man and said, I tell you what, instead of selecting everyone, I'm just going to take a guy and build a whole nation from one man. So he takes a man not on the basis of how good he was, but just because he said, this is the man I'm choosing. And he chose Abram and he called him out of the land and the culture that he lived and he took him over to what we would call the promised land in those days was called Canaan. And he put him in the land of Canaan and said, I'm going to bless you. And by the way, everything you see is going to be yours. It just never happened in his lifetime. So he had two sons and God said, one of them is the chosen son, that's Isaac. And he's told Isaac later on that everything you see, this is yours. But it didn't happen in Isaac's lifetime. And he had two sons. And God says, one of them is the chosen one. And he chose Jacob. And from Jacob, he blessed then with 12 children. Now, these 12 children didn't necessarily like each other. And they did some horrible things. And there was a lot of mess and trouble. And Jacob took a long time to come to trust and walk with the Lord. And his name eventually was changed to Israel. But those boys didn't like each other. They had four mothers and there were problems. And son number 11, who was the favorite in Jacob's eyes, was Joseph. And Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery and taken down to Egypt where God used him over a period of 13 years to rise to become the number two man in all the world, certainly in Egypt. And when the great famine hit earth at the appointed time that God had chosen, He used Joseph down there to bring all of Joseph's family, which was Jacob and the other 11 brothers and their wives and family, a total of 70 people he brought down and brought them into the land of Egypt where now they had been promised they would be a great nation. They promised they would have a land. They were promised that God would bless the worlds through them, but none of it was happening. And they stayed there for about 400 years, and we come to the end of Genesis, and we start the book of Exodus, and now God says, now I have grown you over 400 years, and in that time you became slaves because there arose a Pharaoh who did not know Israel, the family of Israel. So they had grown into perhaps we think two to three million people, And God called Moses to take them out. Moses gets more print copy in the Bible than any other character in Scripture. There's nobody who has four books about everything he did except the Gospels, and they just retell the same story. And they should. It's just about Jesus. But nobody else gets the print, gets coverage that Moses does. And the four books that Moses are involved in, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, recounts the story of him taking the Hebrew children out And they were very reluctant to go, by the way. Slavery was not good, but they weren't sure they wanted to do this thing. He took them out and took them across the wilderness, took them in short measure to the promised land, where, as you remember the story, they voted not to go in. Now, you have to understand, this is a big reason why a lot of ministers don't like votes in churches. (laughs) Biblically speaking, historically speaking, the votes don't go well. They did not go in. At that point that they were to have gone in, there were 603,550 men of the age of 20 to 60, which was the fighting age. If you're over 60, you didn't have to fight. If you were under 20, you didn't fight. So they counted the males, and there were 603,550. God got so angry at their reluctance to trust him because now he was giving them a land and making them a nation. By the way, you can't be a nation without a land, and they'd never had land. 
And all the time that uh, Abram and Isaac and Jacob had lived there, they had a burial plot and they had some land that they could graze their sheep on. They did not own much of anything. So he was keeping his promise, but they were reluctant. The God, over the course of the next 40 years, wandered them through the wilderness. It was not the intention to do that. And over the course of that time, killed 603,548 of the 603,550 men. And only the two spies who said, yes, we should, got to go into the promised land. That was Joshua and Caleb. So we come to the book of Joshua. And this is the story, not of Joshua, and not really the story of Israel. This is the story of God keeping his word. When he said, I will give you a land and I will make you a nation. Now, the third promise, I'll bless all the nations through you, it was going to come later on and specifically through the Messiah, Jesus. But he's keeping promises one and two in the book of Joshua. So we need to, and it was hard for me to get my head around this, we need to understand this is a book about God and what God did. Because I really want to know more of the details of what happened and why. There are so many parts in the story of Joshua where I just said, if you could just give me an explanatory paragraph here, it would really help me. I am a geography, social studies, history person. That's what I taught in school, and I love math, and I taught that too. And I need details. I need facts. I need, I need plans. I need to know everything. And God very clearly left a lot of details out of the book of Joshua, except in one area. The one area where I do not want to know all the details, he just went on chapter after chapter after chapter about it. And we'll talk about that in point number seven. So let's take a look at these uh, seven. And, and if we get time, I have bonus ones to fill in there too. So here we go. Chapter one. Um, now, I have to understand my teaching style in the end, is really not what I say, what God says. So we're going to take some time and read a bit of each of these chapters. So chapter 1 of Joshua, it says in verse 1, it came about that after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses, the servant, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all his people, to the land which I'm giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place in which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses." from the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun, will be your territory. Pause here. That means from the Mediterranean over to Iraq and to up to Jordan and to Lebanon, all the way down to the wilderness, which they never really ever had all of that, except pretty close was in the days of David and Solomon. But for a long time, they didn't have most of that. They don't have that today. And the, where the 12 tribes settled even wasn't all of that. But God promised them a huge, huge territory. Verse 5, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I've been with Moses, I'll be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Now, catch the repetition here. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land, which I swore to their fathers to give them, only... Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that when you may have success wherever you go. For this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you'll make your way prosperous, and then you'll have success, 
Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Point number one that we should get out of this. And there, there's a lot in here. You can preach a ton of sermons from this. This is what struck me as I read it here. Moses died. Moses is big. He is bigger than we can imagine. He is the Muhammad Ali and the Michael Jordan and Obama and the Bush boys. And he's bigger than all that. Moses was everything. He was everything. And the 600 plus thousand men who crossed into the Jordan, over the Jordan and went into the promised land, every one of those was under the age of 60. We know that. And most of them had been born in the wilderness. Every one of them under 40 and that had been born in the wilderness. So all they had ever known was following Moses. That's the only guy, the only guy, and I can't liken it to anything that we experience. Our last pastor was here 13 years, and when he stepped down, that was traumatic for some people. Keith may be here 33 years, but someday he too will step down, or the Lord will take him out one way or another. It will happen, and it will be traumatic when it does happen. But Moses was like, he was next to God. His face shone by being with God, and it says, Moses, my servant's dead now. In other words, that doesn't matter to me, God says. It is no big deal that Moses died I have a plan, and it's going to be done. And we need to understand, this is what I get out of this. One, God is not set back by changing circumstances. I know we have a very dangerous, foolhardy man and a, and a near criminal running for president, but it doesn't matter to God. It truly doesn't. He's going to do what he's going to do, and he's not bothered by that. I'm bothered by that. He is not. He is not set back by the circumstances. They don't throw him off his game. I love the Rangers. When a guy gets an injury or a guy goes down or a guy has some bad games, I get a little worried. I wonder if Cole can come back today and finally pitch good after two horrible outings. God, God doesn't matter what the circumstances. He's not thrown off. He knows what he's going to do. And two, he's going to use who he needs to use and who's there. And Moses was out. God took him out. And he had Joshua. So I want us to understand this. There's no need to be afraid. God says, I gave him the land. I gave the land. You're going to take him in. And nothing is going to keep God from getting it. And look, we're never going to be faithful until we understand it has nothing to do with our circumstances. It has everything to do with who God is and that he's in control and he's in charge. And Moses my dad, now you're going to do it. Didn't ask Joshua, by the way. <laughs> you're going to do it. I've been there. You've been there. Somebody didn't ask me if I wanted to do this. God says, no, because it's not important who I ask. It's important that you go, but the deal is I've given the land. I'm in control. I've given these people over to you. I'm going to keep my word. It's all about God. And in this case, the chosen servant was Joshua. Chapter 2. There's so much to read. Let me start out with verse 1. I won't get it all, but you know the story. The story of Reb. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. Pause. You know this kind of bothered him. He'd been on a spy mission before, and there were 12 of them, and it didn't go well. And unless we make light of it, of the 603,540 didn't make it, all of his best friends except Caleb died. Every best friend he had, many, in fact, 
every family member in his own family who was over the age of 20 died. Don't think that Joshua and Caleb went in here just, just happy they made it. They were happy they made it, but they lost everybody they knew. Every man that they knew had been promised the land never made it. And so it was a bittersweet getting into the promised land for these two men who had seen, who had been to more funerals than they probably ever wanted to be in. Everybody they knew besides each other died, including Moses. We'll pick it back up. So they went and they came to the house of the harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And behold, it was told the king of Jericho saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab. This is one of those things. How did he know? Why did they go there? Now, I kind of get why they went there. In a house of prostitution, people snuck in and snuck out and all kinds of unsavory people went there and people kind of left it alone. It wasn't spotlighted on the 6 o'clock news who went to that house. So it was a great place to hide out and there were strangers there. Although, again, you have to think small Wise County town, Joe. I mean, there's just not tens of thousands of people living there. This is a small town. This is a town, Jericho was a town that was approximately nine acres big. I drive by housing lots that say one acre houses. So I'm looking at nine houses and going, that's the town of Jericho? Nine acres? Two and a half football fields long? One football and a half, one field and a half wide? It's not a big town. So if you go to somebody's house and you're a foreigner, you're known. You're known. It, you, you just don't get away with that stuff. And he said, and said, bring out the men who have come to you. They have entered your house. They have come to search out the land. And all of that was true, by the way. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, yes, the men came to me, but I do not know where they came from. It came out that when the time to shut the gate at dark, that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid out in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to the roof and said to the men, I know the Lord has given you this land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. Pause. That's 40 years ago. 40 years ago in a foreign land, and they didn't have CNN. 40 years ago, and we've been in terror since then. Let's resume here. And no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. Now, therefore, please swear to me that by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a pledge of truth. And spare my father, my mother, and brothers, and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, our, our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours, and it should come about that when the Lord gives us this land, that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Now, you know the story, Rahab, and it all went, and she kept her word. And she got them out of the place. And again, there'd be a lot I would ask God about this story. And I've always pictured heaven as, as a time when we can sit down and ask God everything about the Bible that we don't understand, or everything we don't know, or every detail. I want to see it really on video. I want, to see the re I want to see the entire Bible laid out in video. And God can do that. As I've grown, I'm pretty sure he's not going to do that. He's just not going to do that because the whole deal was to reveal a Savior and to walk with him and spend time. And that's going to happen. And me getting to know every detail is probably not going to happen. So I'm resigned to that. I'm okay with that because it's a better deal anyway. But here's the story. 
God will supply our needs. They needed a place to hide out, and they got that place. Do you understand that the reason God, and and there's a lot here, and I don't have time to go into it, but the reason that when they went into the land of Canaan, that they were commanded that they destroy everybody, and it is brutal, and they did for a time and in places, but they were commanded take everybody out. Two reasons. One, they're going to be a cause of stumbling for you if they stay. And they were. So it's easy to see. But two, God says, this is my land. He said that to Abraham. This is my land, and I'm going to give it to you. So the people in Canaan were not in their land. They were in God's land. And God was punishing them because they had been unfaithful to him. They were descendants from way back in Noah's day, as everybody was. And they had an incredibly godless society where they sacrificed children and burned babies. And they did horrible, horrible things. And they were extremely ungodly. And so when God brought Abram through, he says, by the way, this is your land doesn't tell him all this. I'm going to visit punishment and judgment on these people. But he was kind enough to wait an additional 400 years. Now, he was building the nation, but he was giving the people of Canaan a chance to repent and follow him. And they did not. So he came in there, one, to take out the things that would make his people stumble, but also to execute judgment because he always brings judgment on sin. Sooner or later, in our lifetime or the next, Somewhere along the way, God will judge all sin, and he was judging the Canaanites. But get this, at the very end, uh, one more convert, one more family flips sides and says, we recognize your God is the right God. I'm going to turn my back on every friend and relationship I have in this community, and I want you to know we believe your God. Save my family. And at the last moment, God was gracious to raise up one more convert who was instrumental in these two spies making it out of there alive. But it's exactly what God wanted to happen. God has people in the places we don't have a clue about, and he will save who he wants to save and will respond to him, and he'll use them. And sometimes we think in our families, there's just no way that somebody in our family particularly discouraged about family because we know them so well. We get discouraged that they're never going to get saved. Look, there's no way in the world Rahab should have gotten saved. No pre-missionary, no advanced evangelism team. No one shared with her the gospel. Certainly the spies didn't tell her anything. According to this, they didn't say a word. She says, we know who you are. We know who your God is. We buy into him. That's God. That's not the spies. So God saves people even to the very end and he knows our needs and he takes care of them off and he showed such extreme grace. And if you go ahead and read the story of Rahab, you know that in Matthew, she's one of the only four women listed in the lineage of Jesus. And two of the other three had pretty unsavory backgrounds also. But here's a harlot, which means that she stayed there and somehow she married into the Jewish community. She became a proselyte, she became a believer, and she married in such that Jesus is descended a long, long, long ways back from Rahab. But he's like completely Jewish. So Rahab became Jewish, and her family became Jewish. They became followers. They became converts. And God was so gracious. In the Hebrew Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11, there's only two women mentioned, Sarah and Rahab. Four women mentioned in Matthew 1 when James, the brother of Jesus, 
mentions Abraham and Rahab. Remember the examples of Abraham and Rahab. This is who Jesus' brother said we need to remember. Two people, Abraham and Rahab. Rahab's an incredible story and in how God used her, but the lesson for us is this, not she and what she did and everything. Rather this, God has his people where he wants. He saves to the very end if we'll be faithful, and he will surprise us what he will do. All right, chapter 3. Let's pick up in verse 14. So when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped into the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows its banks in the days of the harvest, and the waters which are flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those which were flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on the dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground until the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. It takes quite a while for a couple million people to pass, even in a hurry. They were carrying children. They had uh, carts. They had animals. They had a lot of stuff. Now, what I want us to see is the water stopped. It piled up in this town called Adam. And Adam's about 20 miles upstream. This is one of those things. It doesn't tell us how God did it. Doesn't tell us, but he did it. And to cut off water 20 miles upstream so that when you put your foot in it, it stops, means God had to do the stopping up part long before it stops here. I mean, I've sat up there and watched the water run down the curb after a good rain because I'm just fascinated by little things like that. And I realized that the water that's coming here had to start up there long before it gets to here. And when it stops, it stopped up there long before it stops here. I'm not really scientific, but it's pretty easy to figure out. So what this tells me is this. God is working before we even know about it, and he's just asking us to be faithful. So when he says, I want you boys to step out into the Jordan. Now, understand this. The Jordan is Pidlin River. It's not much. It's not big. I don't know if you can throw a rock across it, but in some places you can. It's just not big. It's really small. But when it floods, it floods. And it floods to about a mile wide. And when they came across this plain and they came to the Jordan from where they'd been over uh, in the grove of the acacia, which is Shittim, when they came to the border there, they're about mm, a couple of thousand feet above this big valley. Now, the Jordan is just like a culvert that runs through the middle of this. And only once a year does it flood out. And when it floods out, then it rises up and just covers everything up to here. So when they come to this thing, they're looking to step off, and we're not talking about stepping into a creek. We're talking about stepping off the edge of a cliff into a ton of water. Now, it goes down because most of the time you can just walk on down there. At the bottom of it, by, along the river, actually, they had jungles. You can read a couple of different places in Scripture. We're talking about lions and bears who hid in the jungles of the Jordan. They had huge overgrowth and jungle there. And then up the side of that area there, it was pretty desolate and blank. And then you get to the top, you get to that high plain where they were coming from. But they were supposed to step off and get into that. It says when the priests put their foot in there, then the whole thing dried up. Well, it dried up 20 miles before, which I don't know how long is, but I'm telling you, God was doing the work long before they got there. And that's the thing for us. We have to understand God's working before we even can see him working. And all he asks us to do is trust him. And don't tell him... You can't, we can't, this won't work. He's like, I'm doing my part. You do your part, okay? This is your part. Just do what I tell you to do. And that's the deal.
All right. Chapter 4 is a great chapter. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. When the nation of Israel had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, Take for yourselves 12 men from the people, one man from each tribe, and command them, saying, Take up for yourselves 12 stones from here out in the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet are standing firm, and carry them over with you and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. Which was, by the way, about two miles inward from the Jordan. And Joshua said to them, cross again to the ark. So Joshua called the 12 men, verse 4, whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And he said to them, cross again to the ark of the Lord your God, which is in the middle of Jordan still. And each of you will take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes from the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign among you so that when the children ask later, saying, what do these stones mean to you? That you shall say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So the stone shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Thus the sons of Israel did as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, just as the Lord spoke to Joshua according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. And they carried them a couple of miles up over with them to the lodging place and put them there. That place is called Gilgal, by the way. Verse 9, And Joshua set up the 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan at the place where the feet of the priests were. So this is a second place. He went back out there to the Jordan and took 12 stones from the bottom of the river and piled them up in one little pile because most of the time the Jordan was not in a flood until everything completed that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And the people hurried and crossed. And when all the people had finished crossing the ark of the Lord and the priests crossed before the people that the sun... Okay, there we go. So he set up two piles of stones, one in the middle of the Jordan, which is there to this day, it says, and then one up at Gilgal a couple of miles in where they camped the first night in the promised land. Why did God do this? Why would God have them take time, go back, grab some big old stones? We're not talking a hand in a rock, but we're talking a boulder type thing. Why did God have them do this? To remind them, even more importantly, to remind their children. Because God was doing this incredible thing for them and they would not forget it. But the children are another story. Because remember, of the 603,550 men who crossed the Red Sea, only two were left. And so it always happens that whatever God does for us gets forgotten over time. I'm keenly aware of this. I have no children. And everything is not going to be carried on remembered. By the way, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. There's just nothing to pass on to family because there's no family to pass on to. But God says, it's very important that your children know what I did for you. So put it there, and when they ask you, have an answer. This is why in this church you find me always two weeks out on Lord's Supper. If I can do it, I'll remind you. Oh, we have the Lord's Supper in two weeks in the next week. Oh, we have the Lord's Supper in one week. Why? Because we have a lot of parents with a lot of kids, and kids always ask one of a couple questions. What are you doing, and can I have it? Now, I don't have kids, so I've never had to do it, but I've been around enough of them, and I've been a kid, and that's what we ask, and that's what we wondered about, and that's what we do, and they're still the same. So I want parents to have a couple weeks to think about it and get their answers ready again. Know what you're going to say, because it is meant to be a time of talking. It is meant to raise questions. Do not be angry that they ask. It is a wonderful thing because it gives you the opportunity to speak a word about what the Lord has done. And so the 12 stones were there to remind them when your children ask, then you tell them the story again. When you do the Passover, tell the story again of what God did. And so the question I have for
for us is this. What kinds of reminders have you built or established or set up so that it testifies of God's greatness in your life? I really think we ought to take this somewhat literally. Not, not so much stones, but something. Are there things hanging in the house? Are there things in our yard? And I know people wear crosses, but I mean, do we really do anything that leads people to ask, what did you do that for? If I were ever going to have a tattoo, and I will not. But if I were, it ought to have some kind of Christian message, I think. So that when people say, what's that about? They had a tennis player this week who's in the women's finals, and she's a young lady who's never been anything before, and they asked her, what is that tattoo we see on you? And so she told him about her tattoo. It was nothing. It was a piece of art from New Zealand that all of her family had tattooed on them. Her mom, her dad, her sister. And they all wear this tattoo as a sign of them being a family. But if I were going to wear a tattoo, it would be to say, let me tell you what the Lord did in my life here. Now, I'm not endorsing tattoos. <laughs> I go to the gym often and I see a lot of tattoos. So it's something I think a lot about tattoos. Not doing, but I just think about what do all those mean? Is there any meaning to anything they've done? I think it's crazy if you don't have meaning. But I wonder what do we do that would cause people to say, what's that in your house? What do you do this for? Why do you always drive a blue car? Why do you cut your hair that way? Why do you wear those kinds? Why do you do what you do? Do we do anything that gives testimony? This is what God has done in my life. Or let me tell you why I always wear a white shirt on Sunday. Because God saved me and cleansed me. I don't even like white shirts. Now, I don't. This is not my testimony. But I said, whatever we do, do we do anything? Do we do anything that gives people opportunity to say, why? And then we get the opportunity to share. I think we should. I think we should. Okay, chapter 5, we're moving on. This is a shocking chapter. This is probably the most shocking chapter in the whole book. Now... It came about that when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because the sons of Israel paused. God said, I'm going to put the fear of me in them and you'll walk in and you will waltz through this deal. This is an easy deal. I told the men in Bible study, it's like the old guys who used to fight Muhammad Ali. They lost before they got in the ring. And everybody knew they lost before they got in the ring. And when they got in the ring, they lost because they knew they were going to get beaten. And if you know you're going to get beaten, you will get beaten. And God said, I'm going to put it in their hearts. They're beaten. And you just have to go in and mop up. And so it says, all the kings melted. Verse 2, at that time the Lord said to Joshua, make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gilbreth Harleth. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war died in the wilderness, 603,548, along the way after they came out of Egypt. And all the people who came out of were circumcised, for all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out from Egypt had not been circumcised. They had not practiced circumcision since they left Egypt. So the only two men over the age of 60 who were Joshua and Caleb, there were men between 40 and 60 who were under 20 when they came out. They had been circumcised as infants, as they were to have been. But all of the males under 40 had not been circumcised. So God says, just before you go in and take on the kings of the world in Canaan, before you're going to fight 31 different nations, before you go in, let's pause here and have a painful surgery. 
that basically will incapacitate your men for a time. Uh, just the prime men, just the men under 40, just all your guys you're going to really count on. Let's just take them on out. It's like the starting rotation getting knocked out. It's, it's like a starting quarterback getting knocked out. Now go out and win the game with no quarterback. And you're going, I don't have a lot of confidence in that strategy, Lord. And maybe the Cowboys don't. I don't know. But, but in this case, he's taking all the men out and waylaying them. And by the way, they're now in enemy territory. They have crossed. And he does this. And I'm just reminded that God just does the most unusual things against our best plans and with no concern for our timing. Who would have ever have thought at this point? That would have been good on the other side of the Jordan. That would have been good if we'd have been doing it all through the wilderness. But now, Lord, now you want to stop? I mean, we're like, we're like six miles from Jericho. We can almost see it, Lord, and you want to circumcise and waylaid and be in pain and be vulnerable? Is this, is this? And they did. And then he says, now what you're going to do is you're going to celebrate the Passover. Amazing. They hadn't done the Passover once since the first one. And so 40 years to the date of the first Passover, if you read carefully through the rest of chapter 5, and I'm not going to at this time, it is to the very date in the very month on the exact date that they celebrated Passover in Egypt before they came out, the real Passover, the night that death angel came over, 40 years to the date they celebrate for the second time. But God said, one, You'll be circumcised. You're going to be marked as my people. My people. The mark of my people is circumcision. You're going to be my people and take that mark before you're going to celebrate the Passover. So when you realize that I fight for you and I protect you and I go before you and it's been a great sacrifice on your behalf. And he does all these things, which I think are just almost be maddening to Joshua and the boys. They were pumped. They just crossed the Jordan. This is like those guys just before they get out, you know, you see them in the runway, they got the cameras there, but just before they hit the field and, and they're high-fiving and they are up, they are ready for the game, they're ready for the match. And he says, now just take a knee for four days here. We're going to pause and do something pretty painful and bloody and just chill. Because it's not about your energy and your excitement and your enthusiasm and your training and your background. It's all about me. So I think he like put them in the worst possible shape because I want you to know that when I fight, I fight. You just are obedient. So again, God does some very unexpected things with very unexpected timing, and yet it's all to glorify and honor him. All right. Okay, here's the principle for us, I think. We need to be spiritually ready before we do the work of the Lord. I think this is part of the message here of the people. There's a spiritual aspect to what you're going to do. Yes, you're going to go in and you're going to conquer the peoples. You're going to take over the land. You're going to inhabit. You're going to be fruitful. You're going to multiply. But you need to be spiritually ready. I need you circumcised, marked as mine. I need you celebrating my festivals that I command you. I need you to get your spiritual life in gear before you're going to do anything else. And how often, once we know what we're to do, we get after doing it. And we're not necessarily all set up spiritually. We're not really ready. We're not right before the Lord. And they were not right before the Lord because he said, circumcision Passover, you're going to do that, you're going to do that. So we need to take time to get spiritually ready. All right, chapter 6 through 12. I'm not going to read a whole lot of that. Uh, but here, I do want you to read over in chapter 10. And we're going to start at verse 38. Joshua 10, 38. Now, they've come in and they fought kings everywhere. With the exception of the first battle of Ai, they've won everything. They had one setback, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But here's the deal. 
Josh and all Israel returned to Deborah and they fought against it and they captured it and the king and all the cities and they struck them with the edge of the sword and they utterly destroyed every person who was in it. He left no survivor just as he had done to Hebron so he did to Deborah and its king as he had done to those at Libna and its king. And Joshua struck all the land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowland, the slopes and all the kings. He left no survivor but he utterly destroyed all those who breathed just as the Lord the God of Israel had commanded. Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea. That's where they failed to cross the land the first time. Even as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon, Joshua captured all these kings and their lands at one time because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. So Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal, which was their very first place when they crossed the Jordan. Crossing the Jordan, getting into the promised land because of bad theology and the popularity of a lot of uh, spirituals is a picture sometimes of going to heaven, crossing the Jordan, crossing over. But it is not accurately, theologically, biblically correct to do that. Crossing the Jordan is the picture of where the believer is to live his life in victory in the promised land. It's on earth. And so he took, takes them out of slavery in Egypt and out of that they're to go to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And honey, by the way, is a picture of the Holy Spirit. And he fed them the little wafers of manna on the way and those mannas were sprinkled and said it had a light taste of honey. Again, a picture of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's kind of a reminder of what heaven's going to be, but it's just a foretaste of it. But the whole picture of crossing the Jordan and living in the promised land is this, the, of the Christian life. This is the land. We're supposed to be in the land of Canaan, spiritually speaking now. And, but here's the deal. When they went into Canaan, they had wars. And so guys and gals understand this. When we live the victorious Christian life, we're going to have fights. We're going to have wars. We're going to have struggles. We're going to have problems. We're going to have issues. And... That's what happens in the Christian life. It's just that we're supposed to have victory over all of them. Now, will we? Nope, they didn't either. But they only didn't when they weren't obedient. And the victory is not that I'm going to live in this three-story mansion and, and have a retirement that allows me to travel anywhere I want beginning at age of 47. That's not the victory. The victory is just taking the land and living in victory and, and working the land. We've heard a lot about working. They were going to continue to work and they were going to continue to encounter problems and they were going to continue to encounter issues. When we're obedient, we still run into stuff and stuff happens. Even if we're obedient, even if we we're supposed to be and they were, there were people that kept rising up to cause them issues. And so in the Christian life, we never get to the place where it's just coasting. It just never is. That's heaven. Heaven is coasting. And heaven is a great reward. And one day we are promised heaven. But on this side, which is the promised land, where we're supposed to be, we're going to have to work it and enjoy it and grow our families and be fruitful and be multiplying. But there will be struggles because there's going to be a lot of stuff around us that shouldn't be around us. All right, now, let me give you one of the bonus ones. In Joshua 7, they make a slight mistake. And this mistake is when they went into Jericho, they were to take everything and destroy it and they were to save the gold and silver and, and a couple of things, metals and put it into the tabernacle. And one guy named Achan didn't. He stole some stuff and kept it and hid it. And here's the deal. In chapter 7, it says they came to the next city after Jericho and Joshua didn't know what Achan had done. He didn't know there had been sin in the camp. And so 
he gets ready to go to AI and they say, oh, it's a tiny town. It's a tiny town. We don't need to send our hundreds of thousands of men out there. Let's just send about 3,000 guys out there. That should be enough. So they went out there and they got routed. They got routed. And 36 guys died in the battle. And they come back and Joshua's beside himself. Lord, are you not on our side anymore? What's going to happen? What about your name? What about your people? What's going to happen? And God says, look. They're sending the camp. There's somebody that didn't do what they're supposed to do. They took some stuff under the band, the harem, H-E-R-E-M, the harem stuff, and they were not supposed to. And, and Joshua goes, what? Consecrate yourselves, get cleaned up, get ready, and we'll cast lots, and I'll show you the deal. So he reveals them that it's Achan and his family, and they, he goes ballistic on, on Achan, of course. Because basically what he tells Achan is, what did you do? Give God the glory, tell the truth. He says, I saw it, I coveted it, and we could do a great story there, but we don't have time. But here's the deal. God punish the nation of Israel because of one man's disobedience. One man's disobedience. Now, they destroyed his entire family and everything he owned. And that's a pretty brutal thing, but we could talk more about it, but we don't have the time. So anyway, they did. But here's the deal. When there's sin in the camp, there's consequences for everybody. And God had made a covenant with the nation of Israel, not with the person of Joshua, not with the person of Moses, but he made a covenant with the nation of Israel. And so when somebody failed, the nation failed. And so the nation lost a battle that was not really their fault, but somebody had messed up. And we live today in the United States in such an individualistic, independent, give me freedom or give me death society that we don't feel much group identity. And if you mess up, I shouldn't suffer. And if I mess up, that shouldn't cause you heartache. But let me tell you, Certainly in the church it does, and in our families it does. Because I look at the family of Achan, and he messed up, and all of his family got destroyed because of it. And you say, is that fair? It's not the question. God made the choice, so it was right. It was the right decision to do. And I can tell you why I think, again, later, but not now. But I'm just telling you this. There are always consequences of sin. It always has impact, and it's much more than we think. And this is why churches from time to time practice church discipline, not because they enjoy it. Nobody enjoys church discipline. Church discipline says we take it serious and there are implications for the whole body. All right. I told you I don't like the endless detail in this chapters 13 through 21. It is the careful division of the land. After they've conquered everything, they go in and they redivide the land up among the tribes. And it goes on forever. And because I'm a geography guy, I've pulled the maps out. I've tried to figure it out. tried to draw the line. I can't. They don't know where the cities are. It's hard to see. It's old stuff. A lot of it's disappeared. You can see approximations on maps. You can look at 58 maps, and they're going to get 53 interpretations of where it was. It's very confusing. And where did the tribe of Simeon go? I mean, all of that. It's very, very confusing to that. That's not the point. But it was then. This is the question I always ask. Why did God take like 10 chapters to tell me who got which land. I don't really care. Why did he do that? Well, one, he didn't care what I thought. But here's the bigger deal. I told you that God made three promises to Abraham, and he's fulfilling the first two. That is, I'm going to make you a nation, and I'm going to give you a land. So chapters 13 through 21 is God saying, look, I am keeping my promise, and I'm going to do it in detail. I'm going to spell it out specifically. Every tribe is going to get land. And here's where the land that they're going to inherit. And here's where the Levites are going to be. And here's the cities of refuge. And here's where they're going to be. All of that stuff. 
God put in there to endless detail, which just kills me when I read through there. But I'm one of these guys, if you read it, you have to read all of it. So I read all of it, and I'm like, this is wearing me out. Why, 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 when there's so much you didn't tell me? He said, I'm keeping my word, and God keeping his word is very important to God. He wants us, his people, and those people to know he keeps his word. So he spends a huge amount of the book of Joshua, boring me, but emphasizing, I keep my word to the last degree. I've given you land, and I've made you a mighty and a fearful nation. And now, the third part, I'm going to bless the nations of the world if you'll continue to walk in obedience, which they did not do. Now, there's even more bonus stuff, but we are clearly out of time. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the book of Joshua. We thank you for his willingness to walk with you and trust you. We recognize, Father, that he messed up at least a couple of times. And the word says he quit asking you. And as soon as he quit asking you, Father, he was in trouble. And so we know, most of all, it's really not a book about Joshua. It's about a book about you and your faithfulness and our need to just walk in obedience and trust you and trust that you have people and you have places and you have circumstances and that you keep your word and that we should have courage to trust you as you lead us, not because we understand, but because you lead us. So, Father, give us that courage to be your people today, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.